You're tuned in to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. One ongoing symptom of the COVID pandemic, the impact upon supply chains. The whole process from manufacturing to distribution to retailing has been disrupted, and at times can be a bit inconvenient. We just got a new couch recently, replacing the one we bought when we first moved back to America from the mission field. After visiting our fair share of furniture stores last summer, sitting on all kinds of couches on the showroom floors, we found one that suited our comfort, our needs, our style, and our price. So we paid for half of it, though we were told we could expect delays. Well, as promised, it was delayed again and again and again. We called every two weeks or so, and most of the time there was a new estimated delivery date that was pushed further back. Then the other week, after about seven months of waiting, the furniture store called. And honestly, the guy who called was ecstatic in the voicemail. I think he was happier than we were to report our, cu- our couch had finally arrived. To find the odds of the supply chain woes, our couch finally coming through. Seven months after we ordered it. Now for us to enjoy in our living room. Then, just before Christmas, our microwave went out. Because, of course, that's when appliances break. Just days before major holidays, it's part of the engineering specs, I think. And I went online and found a suitable replacement for our microwave and ordered and paid online. Now, the original delivery date was a few weeks out, but you know, supply chains. When the date arrived, when I should have been able to pick it up in the store, I checked the order, and what do you know, it was delayed. Hadn't left the warehouse yet, and they'd be in touch when it arrived. When should that be? Who knows? Seven days, seven months, seven years? Spin the supply chain wheel and your guess is as good as mine. But last Thursday, I got a text telling me my order was ready. A gracious gift of the supply chain woes, just a few weeks behind schedule. And then there's the cat food. So our cats are coming up on a year old, and while kittens, one of them clearly had some digestive issues. Not hard to tell when there are pools of undigested food left as gifts on the hardwood floors we have throughout the house. So a trip to the vet and our cats were put on a prescription diet. It did the trick for the most part, but alas, no running to Walmart to buy our cats food. We have to buy the bougie food, prescription and all, and we need to call it in. And man, it is hard to track down in this supply chain strain world of ours. One week the vet has it in stock, a few weeks later, they're out. Even the big box stores, their supplies of this pricey cat food ebb and flow, and when it's time to restock, it's not rare to find us darting from store to store in a cat food scavenger hunt in which most places are out and we turn up empty. Or to save the running around, we end up calling multiple stores placed on hold multiple times until we can track down just where it might be available in the metro area. All in a cat and mouse game with the supply chain. No pun intended. So Thursday, after a long day at work and an appointment in the city, I decided to swing by the store where my delayed microwave was waiting for me. That way on Friday, I could head straight home from work, no running around necessary. Now, to do this, we live in a smaller town outside of the city, so everything seems to be 30 to 45 minutes away at least. And on this day, I covered some miles, heading from my work to my appointment, heading northwest, driving about 40 minutes. Then I headed south, driving about 30 minutes to my shiny new microwave. Then I headed east toward home, another 35 or 40 minutes, completing a huge triangle of transport, almost the perfect equilateral equilateral triangle that would make my high school geometry teacher proud. All this running around thanks to the supply chain. When I got home, new microwave in tow, we realized we were almost out of the pretty penny prescription cat food. No problem, we just had to call the local vet the next day and swing by after work, right? Wrong. Next day, they told us that we that they were out, and it might be a week or so until their next shipment arrived. 
So some phone calls and where do we find the cat food? At a big box store, 50 yards from where I had driven the night before to pick up my microwave. So on Friday afternoon, after a full week of work, where was I headed? The same place I had been the night before. I was not pleased by any means. Irritated would put it lightly. The irony of it all, having gone out of my way the day before to get the microwave to avoid going into the city Friday after work, a spoiled plan because now I was headed that way anyway. I was inconvenienced and boiling inside. Thanks, supply chain. And then as irritated as I was, as much as it was going to make me go out of my way, I thought of them, our little kitties. I could just picture their sad, pleading eyes if I came home empty-hatted. No morsels to feed them with, and hungry cats are not happy cats. And as funny as it sounds, I melted. Their pouting little faces staring at me in my mind's eye, and my heart softened. And I was like, I have to do this, because my kitties are depending on it. How else would they eat? Who else would feed them? I was now willing to head that way to go the extra mile to enjoy an hour of drive time with all the other afternoon Friday afternoon drivers because if I didn't come through, then the cats would go without. But it would take me going the extra mile. Last time we saw that Paul was concerned for the believers in Thessalonica, that the hardships and afflictions they were facing would swallow them up, and he reminded them that Satan was wanting to hinder them in their newfound faith, and that Paul wanted to come to them to encourage them, to help them, to teach them, to support them, because they were the crowning achievement of his life and ministry, seeing them in Christ's kingdom. On this podcast, Paul is willing to go the extra mile to make sure that they're doing well, something he talks about as we start 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. You've probably gone the extra mile before. If not for your cats, then for your kids or your spouse or your boss or your church or even a stranger. You wrestle briefly with a personal inconvenience, but when then you know the right thing to do and you step up and you come through, your sacrifice and others gain. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Apparently, if a Roman soldier laid their sword across your shoulder, you had an obligation, no matter who you were or what you had previously been doing, to drop it all and go one mile with the soldier, carrying whatever they needed help with. And Jesus challenged us not to just go one mile, but to go two, to go beyond duty and to be a blessing when it comes to serving others. Jesus modeled this many times. There's a scene in Matthew 9, Jesus is worn out, need after need arising. And we read, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now, this was a really full ministry schedule. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. He went the extra mile because the needs were so great, sacrificing himself long before the cross, pouring out his life that others might live. In 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul finds himself in Corinth, writing back to the new believers in Thessalonica because he had been forced to flee after just a few weeks with them. They had headed on to Berea, and the trouble followed, then on to Athens, and the whole time Paul was concerned, not just for the threats that he was facing personally, but for them and the affliction they were going through so fresh in the faith. When we have a lot going on in our lives, we can easily get tunnel vision, focusing on all that we are sorting through and we cut out the peripherals. It's survival of the fittest, and we'll check in again with others when we get out of our own junk and we get it all taken care of. As we look in 1 Thessalonians 3, though, 
Paul was dealing with his own stuff, but the Spirit of Christ within him would not let him neglect the Thessalonians. We read in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Paul couldn't stand it a moment longer. They had rushed out of Thessalonica, then pushed out of Berea by the same envious Jews, and there they were in Athens, probably discouraged, defeated, and frustrated. I mean, what is going on, Lord? They had come to Europe because God had told them to back in Acts 16, trying to go into east, going to, trying to go east into Asia Minor, and the Spirit prohibited them, closed all the doors. They tried a few more, and the Lord said, no. Then a vision of a man from Macedonia beckoning them to come. So they did. They concluded it was the Lord, letting the Lord make the plan. It was a God plan, and they were obedient to follow. Since then, beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, then dishonorably discharged by the Roman officials there, Then in Thessalonica, people came to Jesus, but the envious Jews spoiled things and sent them out of town, Paul and his team, having stirred up a mob and harassing the new believers in Thessalonica. Then in Berea, some great moments with those there as these fair-minded people received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether the things Paul and his group had taught were so. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, They came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. And so Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 3 that he could no longer endure it. It was killing him, the not knowing how they were doing. Were they still walking with Jesus? Had they denied the faith? Were they clinging to hope in the gospel? Or had their joy been robbed? No, Paul himself needed some encouragement, some tending to, some fellowship. But he writes, When we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. Paul says, Though I needed Timothy, you needed him more. He was willing to go the extra mile to be left in Athens alone, and to send Timothy instead to their side to be of aid to them. Serving others will often lead us to sacrifice on our end, and that's true service. The time we could have for ourselves, the resources we could keep for ourselves, the fellowship we could hold on to for ourselves. Sometimes we need to let go of that which is for us so that others might benefit. Churches and ministries have to do this all the time. Watch people grow up and mature in the faith, and as much as you want to hold on to them, enjoy their gifts and fellowship, you have to send them out for the work of the kingdom of God. And though there's a void and gap missing when they head out, God is faithful to fill those gaps. Paul sent Timothy, a brother, a minister of God, a fellow laborer. The word minister there, it wasn't an official prestigious title of career Christian service. It's essentially a waiter. A minister was waiting tables, serving and clearing as others enjoyed their time around the table. Timothy was a minister of God, as we should all be, serving up portions of God as we interact with others, 
bringing God to those who are hungry and needing and wanting. And Paul sent Timothy with a specific focus. He writes, To establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that you would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. There was a need in Thessalonica for them to be established and encouraged, to lay a firm and solid foundation, so that they might be established. The time that Paul and his group had been in Thessalonica was brief, and though they poured as much into the believers as possible, they were still needing to be established. And with the weight of hardships that they were enduring, Paul wanted to Timothy to, wanted Timothy to go to them to establish them, to ground them in, in Christ's word. Jesus himself said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But... Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The word of God is a firm foundation, and when we are established on that, when we hear those words and do them, we are wise. Not even the most violent storm can shake us. Paul did not want them to be shaken by the afflictions, even though he had told them beforehand that they would come, and even though they knew that as believers they were appointed to this. It's when we are shaken that we see how strong our faith really is. And it's in those times of shaking that we see what our faith is really made of. The Apostle Peter's faith was shaken when he watched Jesus arrested and he himself denied his teacher. And then he saw the crucifixion, the empty tomb, and all manner of shaking going on with what he thought he knew himself, confident that he would be able to handle it. Later, Peter would write, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Of course, we are always surprised when our lives are shaken, wondering what is going on and what have we done to deserve this. That's why Paul reminds them that this, this is, quote, normal for the believer to experience, that we've actually been appointed to this. Commentator David Guzik writes, Some believe that affliction means God is angry at the believer. The truth is, is that affliction means that God loves us enough to give the best when we may only deserve what is easy. The symbol of Christianity is the cross, not a feather bed. Affliction is just part of following Jesus. Therefore, for Paul recognized that Christians are appointed to affliction. However, it can be hard to wrap our minds around this, can it? We can ask the questions, why? Why is this happening to me? Why are you allowing this, Lord? Why aren't others going through this? And the enemy knows this and can tempt us to stop trusting God in the midst of shaking and to move toward or cling to something else instead. Paul writes, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. The tempter. Tempting us to cling to other things in the shaking. A tempter dangles something in front of you to distract you or draw you away. I mentioned the new couch earlier and our cats. Well, one of them loves the new couch, loves to scratch it, 
that is. Thankfully, it's on the backside and actually underneath, so nothing too concerning, but still. So when she gets to work, sometimes we grab a toy. It's some small stuffed Christmas reindeer doll doll on the end of a long string. Yes, first class cat toys in our house. But we tempt the cat away from the couch, tossing the toy along the floor, then dragging it away repeatedly, hoping that it was the cat would see it as some mouse or some other prey that they need to give immediate attention to, tempting the cat to go after it to leave the couch alone. And it works sometimes and others it doesn't. But the tempting... The tempter draws us away, or tries to at least, to distract us, to rob us of something. In temptation, an alternative is usually offered, one that is inferior, or a shortcut is offered, one that doesn't offer the same results or takes us to a different destination. And the tempter works when we are being shaken, to turn to other things for stability, things that won't hold us firmly, but also to turn away and to stop trusting the Lord. To weaken our faith rather than strengthen as God intended. That's why sometimes you talk to people and they say they don't believe in God or won't believe in God because of something that God did or did not do in the past during a time of shaking. Maybe he did not heal the person that they asked him to or he did not give the answer they were hoping for. They ended up disappointed with what God did or did not do in the shaking. And the tempter was successful in drawing them away from God when they should have been running to him. The tempter tries to maneuver suffering to destroy our faith. That's a key reason Timothy headed to Thessalonica. He writes, When I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. That the labor might not be in vain. Vain, without impact, without fruit. Paul said we were appointed for afflictions. Jesus also said this about being appointed. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Fruit that remains, not fruit that is in vain. It's the soil that was sown among the rocks that Paul was concerned with. Jesus explaining, these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness and they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. So that the work had not been in vain, Timothy was dispatched to establish these believers and that they might cling to Jesus in the shaking. Rich Mullins did a song in the 90s and it was redone more recently by Big Daddy Weave and it goes, Well, sometimes my life just don't make sense at all. When the mountains look so big and my faith just seems so small. So hold me, Jesus because I'm shaking like a leaf. You've been my king of glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? We've all been there, shaking like a leaf, even the smallest breeze moving us. The writer of Hebrews wrote about the hall of faith, great men and women of faith, a great cloud of witnesses, and yet they were shaken, and time would fail to tell of those who saw the Lord do great things and also suffered great things. The promises still waiting to be filled. But after this expose of the faithful in Hebrews 11, we read at the end of chapter 12 that even the faithful can expect shaking. The author writes, But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth but also heaven, as he's quoting there from Haggai in the Old Testament. Then he comments, Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably 
with reverence and godly fear. God allows the shaking, and when the dust settles, only the things that can't be shaken remain, the kingdom which cannot be shaken. It's no wonder we seem to be seeing more and more shaking as the kingdom draws near. Think about the shaking since COVID started. The fear of an unknown virus, lockdowns, people losing work, schools shutting down, the worries of the future. What will my job look like? Will my loved ones be okay? Throw in tumultuous elections, social conflict, economic hardships, polarization in all levels of society, supply and demand issues, including couches that take seven months, sorry, first world problems, add to it mixed messages, waves of illness, people dying, what media to trust, things have surely shaken, and maybe for the first time ever, shaken everywhere, globally. And it's interesting to watch what people cling to in the midst of shaking, and how God continues to teach us that the only thing to cling to when things shake is Him. Now, not to get on either side of the vaccination debate right now, but much of the world has, in the shaking, clung to the vaccines. It's often touted as the main solution to all that the world is facing, to keep people from dying, to get people back to work, to make life, quote, normal again. So it's frustrating and nerving for many two years in to have that confidence in vaccines now shaken. I have a number of vaxxed co-workers recently out with COVID, even though they were vaccinated. I know someone who had to pick up their kid from school sent home to quarantine after exposure, and though the child had a certificate showing antibodies, the school said only kids in the class who were vaccinated could remain in school for the week, which was ironic because the kid in class who had exposed all the others with COVID had been vaccinated. And just last week, one of the last places on earth to hold out from getting COVID, it's a South Pacific island nation called Kiribati, having closed its borders for the better part of two years. The Associated Press reported, Kiribati finally began reopening this month, allowing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to charter a plane to bring home 54 of the island nation's citizens. Many of those aboard were missionaries who had left Kiribati before the border closure to go on their iconic two-year missions. Before letting them come back to Kiribati, officials tested each returning passenger three times in nearby Fiji, required that they be vaccinated, and put them in quarantine with additional testing when they arrived home. But it wasn't enough. More than half the passengers tested positive for the virus, which has now slipped out into the community and prompted the government to declare a state of disaster. An initial 36 cases from the flight had ballooned to 181 cases by the end of that same week at the time of this recording. Now, not to get into the vax or anti-vax debate, but still, they took all the precautions in that island nation above and beyond to make sure that they wouldn't bring COVID home, vaxxed, tested, quarantined, above and beyond, and it slipped through. And while much of the world has clung to vaccines and the promise of them and the shaking, now things have been shaken up a bit. Kirbati's attempts a case in point, but stories like this all around. What do you turn in? What do you turn to in the shaking in your world? If it is anything other than Jesus, it will crumble. The foolish man does his own thing and builds on the sand. The wise man hears Jesus and obeys and builds on the rock. We can't cling to anything in this life other than Jesus. It will be shaken. God will continue to allow this world to be shaken as it shows us there in Hebrews, as man continues to try to live apart from God. But all the kingdoms of man will eventually come crashing down to make way for the only kingdom built upon a firm foundation, the kingdom of Christ, for which we eagerly wait. 
And while Paul trusted Jesus completely with the Thessalonian believers, he's relieved now that Timothy has brought back word from them. We read verses 6 through 10. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith? It was good news that Timothy brought. They were doing well in Thessalonica, still clinging to Jesus and longing for Paul as well. And this brought comfort. Notice what the tempter had also done, taking advantage of the lack of communication the lack of clarity of what was going on, and it was used by the enemy. But now that contact had been reestablished, things were clear again. Communication is something that the enemy seeks to mess with, to cut it off, to delay it, to confuse it. That's why Paul wrote at the start of the chapter, when I could no longer endure it. This had been an area where Paul felt attacked and strained when the communication was cut off. That's why communication is key in marriage, in ministry, in the body of Christ, because the enemy loves to turn up the static when communication is sporadic. So one of the best ways to find victory in this area, keep the communication open. Seek to communicate. It often dispels the lies of the enemy. Just talk. Paul was rejoicing at the news, but still praying that God would open the door for him to go to them and that they could continue the work of strengthening them in the faith. There's something interesting in this chapter as we go back and look through it again. About four times, Paul refers to their hardships. In verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. Verse 4, we told you before when we were with you that you would suffer tribulation. Verse 7, brethren, in all our affliction. And again in verse 7, in all our distress. Four times, Paul focusing on the hardships that they were facing. But where afflictions and tribulations and distress were a reality, four times mentioned in these verses, the word faith is mentioned more. Verse 2, we sent Timothy to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Verse 5, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. Verse 6, Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith. Verse 7, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. Verse 10, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Afflictions and tribulation distress four times, their faith shows up five times. And that's one of the keys to defeating and to balancing out afflictions is to increase our faith. While affliction can be used by God to grow our faith, living by faith is the best way to prepare for afflictions. The time to grow and prepare for hardship is not in the hard times but to grow in our faith so we will be able to stand in the challenges that will come. Jeremiah asked in chapter 2, verse 5, If you run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? If you can't keep up now when times are easy, Jeremiah says, what will you do when things are tough? That's why Paul was keeping an eye on their faith, because if that was strong, then no affliction would shake them too hard. Peter, James, and John were just a stone's throw away when Jesus was praying in the garden, the greatest trial for them all just around the corner. Then Jesus came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Jesus warned them, telling them to use this time to get ready. That temptation was coming. The tempter was coming to prepare in advance in the spirit for that which they'd soon face. If we wait until the hour of temptation to try and resist, we've already lost. In faith, we prepare in advance, strengthening our faith when we can so that we can endure when it seems like we can't. How many have fallen into temptation or sin because in the moment they try and resist or fight a battle that should have been fought and won before? But weak faith going into the battle leads the affliction or temptation to win in the end. Paul was comforted to hear when Timothy or from Timothy that since they had left Thessalonica, the believers had been growing in faith and their faith was stronger, not weaker. And they were thankful to God and rejoicing because of it. Paul said in verse 8, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Fill in that blank for a moment. For now we live if blank. What makes you live? What do you live for? What do we turn to for life? The tempter will tempt us to look to other sources of life. As the tempter tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, deceiving them about the life that God had given them, and dangling before them an improved, enlightened life in garden, knowing both good and evil, being like God, but it was a trap. And the life that they thought they were gaining only robbed them of the life that God had for them. Because of sin, we've all been robbed of the life that God has for us, cast into a world of affliction, some of it by our own sinful, rebellious doing and choosing, and some of it by default as we just live in this fallen world. But Jesus came, and he said, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He also said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus breaking the curse of sin that has afflicted us in this world, the just for the unjust, dying in our place, forgiving our sin because he knew none. That is the only thing that we can cling to in this life. The tempter will tempt us to have faith in ourselves, our own righteousness, our own good works, but none of that will stand before the Lord. Only trusting in Jesus as the Savior, as your Savior, will stand in the end. Everything else will be shaken and fall. Paul got the good news from Thessalonica that he was longing to hear. But prior to that, he was shaken. Worried about his friends, worried about the ministry. Had it all been in vain? Were they still walking with Jesus? Had the gospel been fruitful? But Timothy supplied the good news that they were A-OK. And what a relief it had been, as it was written in Proverbs 25, 25, as cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. Timothy supplying a drink of refreshment in the good news that he brought. How is your supply chain going, the supply chain of your faith? Is it delayed and sparse? Is it sporadic and unfulfilled? Or are your storehouses of faith full and brimming? By default in this world, pandemics or none, we will be shaken. And it will continue until all that remains is the one thing that cannot be shaken, Christ's kingdom. Anything and everything in our lives that can shake will be shaken. And that shouldn't surprise us. But when it does, trust in this. By faith, God will give you everything you need. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Whatever you need to endure any shaking, any affliction, any hardship, any temptation, God will supply. And in fact, he has supplied it, found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So Lord, when the world around us starts shaking, give us grace to not be moved. 
Show us now, Jesus, where our handholds can be in you, how to cling tighter and, and where and where to do so, where to cling in you, so that when and not if, but when our world shake, we are already secure, Lord, a firm foundation in all that you've done and in every promise that you've given. Lord, help us to go the extra mile, to not lose sight of the needs around us, even when our needs seem so great. And that we find much grace and that your grace is sufficient for us and that your power is perfected in our weaknesses. Use us, Lord, to strengthen those who are weak in their faith and to send to us those who might be used to strengthen us in our faith. And Lord, may this world ever increasingly look to you in all the shaking that's going on and find the one firm foundation that they truly need in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.